Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? Live from Omricon Island. We're going to do a festive quiz, but for some reason we've gone off the idea. I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's say hello to the panel. Best written CEO Naomi Smith was on stage with me last week at our live show at the Leicester Square Theatre, where she admitted to hating Christmas. Hello, the Naomi who stole Christmas. Uh, have you had a festive backlash yet? <laughs> Quite the opposite, Dorian. I've had a lot of support from our followers. So uh, thank you very much, sensible Scroogey listeners of this podcast. Absolutely shocking. <laughs> run, a, run another poll. <laughs> Do another referendum. In Brexit news, uh, Penny Mordaunt is touring the US, telling them that Brexit is a great opportunity for America. Um, is she right, but not for the reasons she thinks she is? I mean, what a bunch of shape-shifting creeps the Brexiteers are, huh? I mean, they lied their way to the top, throwing out different reasons, left, right and centre, about why they wanted to leave the EU, that it would boost the economy, that it would harm the economy, but that was the price of sovereignty, that it would fund the NHS, that it would de-staff the NHS, but that didn't matter because Fatima the ballerina could retrain as a coder and robots can replace the nurses. And now... Now that their Brexit experiment is failing so badly before their eyes, the message is, we didn't do Brexit for us. We did it for you, America. I mean, what a joke. And it's a Trumpian one at that. Uh, for he was, of course, bigly in favour of the Brexit um, because it meant that the USA would be able to sell into a newly privatised British healthcare system. Um, so Morden did her speech in Texas this week and uh, and she said, what an opportunity Brexit is for America and the rest of the world. And for once, Dorian, she is dead right. We're about to sign a free trade agreement with Australia that will be great for Australian farmers, terrible for us and the climate. We've signed one with New Zealand that boosts their GDP and could possibly even shrink ours, according to official estimates. And if we ever do get a deal with uh, the USA, a free trade deal, of course, it will help their medical, pharmaceutical and agri-food sectors while hurting ours and, and lowering uh, quality food standards into our supply chain. So I think this is very embarrassing for the government who said the US would be clamoring for a deal to now actually be begging for one. Um, and and you're right, she she is correct, but for all the wrong reasons. Well, I'm at least envious of her and uh, Ian Dunt uh, for being in America and leaving a country that I have not left forever. <laughs> so good for her. Roz Taylor runs the LSE COVID blog. Hi, Roz. Hello, Dorian. Um, Roz, back when he was working for Liberty and bringing war criminals to justice, did uh, plucky young lawyer Dominic Raab ever think one day he would be a minister dedicated to destroying the Human Rights Act in a crusade against wokery and political correctness? Uh, what specifically does he want to change? Dominic Raab doesn't think that rights enacted in law is a useful concept. And this is this is something that some lawyers believe. Quite, quite a lot of lawyers like the idea of rights in law and believe it's a very good thing. Rob does not. Lawyers do like law. I've they do like that. law. But the question is, what kind of law? Is it criminal law for the bad ones and cases fought out in the civil courts for other stuff? Now, that is the model that Dominic Robb in, uh, enjoys. And he believes in common with a small subset of lawyers who often are members of something called the Judicial Power Project, which is, in their view, not a good thing. Judicial power, in their view, is a bad thing. That human rights law uh, is it should, it should be subject to democratic oversight, by which they mean parliament, no matter how much you might think the parliament has recently been neutered. And his view is that the balance between the executive and the judiciary and parliament has shifted too far towards the ju judiciary. So that in combination with the fact that the Human Rights Act, although it is a it's a British act comes from the European Convention on Human Rights and that's European and we know what you know we think about Europe means that he is opposed to it and and what what is the threat to human rights from uh, wokery well the threat to human rights is the threat to freedom of speech and as we know this is a human right which trumps many other human rights particularly economic and social ones in the minds of many conservatives including Dominic Raab so it's the it'll be the, it'll be the rod little bill <laughs> 
Yeah. Rod, Rod's Law. <laughs> um, our, special, our special guest this week is Kim Gattis, Beirut-born journalist, Middle East commentator and contributing writer to The Atlantic. Her books are The Secretary, about Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State, and Black Wave, a history of the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran since 1979, which was named one of the 100 notable books of 2020 by The New York Times. Hi, Kim. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be on the show. So this week, we've seen Saudi Arabia hosting a Formula One race for the first time and opening an international film festival. Both of them Mm. have been attacked for whitewashing the country's human rights record. Would I be right in thinking that that is precisely the goal? Yes, uh, that is precisely um, the goal. It's to give Saudi Arabia a shiny outside image to the outside world, make everyone forget about uh, some of their past abuses and still present um, abuses, whether it's women who are still in jail, um, the murder and dismembering of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Turkey in 2018, and just you know, generally other uh, foreign policy, very aggressive foreign policy moves by Saudi Arabia, like the war in Yemen. So this is all to show the world a different image. But I must say that it's also important to remember that you have a whole population within Saudi Arabia that is very grateful that they are now able to enjoy themselves and partake in such activities and entertainment like everyone else around the world, because they've been living in a very conservative kingdom uh, that did not allow any of these um, events to take place before, be it music or Formula One races or even less extravagant things like museums. So I think it's important to look at both sides of the story to Mm. remain clear-eyed about what the Saudis are trying to do in terms of glossing over the abuses. But remember also that there's a whole population, you know, a large majority of which is below 35, uh, that is grateful that it can feel part of the rest of the world. Thanks, Kim. On today's show, it's been another rough week for Boris Johnson. We ask, should he stay or should he go? And after a horrific year across the Middle East, and especially Afghanistan, we'll be talking to Kim about the shape the West has left the region in and whether we can ever exercise positive influence there again. Plus, in the extra bit for Patreon people, we used to talk about talking to Brexity relatives over Christmas. Now we talk about seeing relatives who won't get vaccinated. What's the best way of dealing with them and do they know it's Vaxmas time? Before we start, we promised you live shows in Not London and next year we're delivering on our pledges to the British people. We've got two shows outside the Metropolitan Bubble and tickets are on sale now. On Saturday 29th of January, we're live at Leeds, just like The Who, with a matinee show at the legendary City Varieties Music Hall, where, younger listeners will recall, they used to shoot the good old days for TV. Search City Varieties Music Hall for tickets. And on Wednesday 2nd of February, we're podcasting from the South Coast in Brighton, or Hove actually, with an evening show at the Old Market Theatre on Upper Market Street. Tickets are on sale right now at theoldmarket.com. Patreon people all got early bird notifications and discounts, and your discounts still work, so join us in West Yorkshire and Sussex. Who knows where we'll be next? It's the most febrile and dangerous week for Boris Johnson yet. Labour has shot to a nine-point lead, the highest since early 2014, and Johnson's personal approval rating has hit an all-time low of minus 42, which is deep into Corbyn 29 territory. The mood in the Tory party was described as sulphurous by the FT. The Christmas party scandal rolls on. You may have seen the delightful uh, delightful shot of uh, Sean Bailey's party posse in the Daily Mirror today. And Lord Gite, the independent advisor on ministers' interests, is apparently on the verge of quitting over the previous scandal of who paid to redecorate the PM's flat. And The Guardian reports that the key is in the ignition for a leadership challenge. All this and Omicron too. Let's start with the biggest backbench rebellion against Johnson yet, with 100 Tory MPs voting against new COVID restrictions or abstaining. The Telegraph called it a hammer blow to the PM's authority. Roz, do you think the the issues here, which is the vaccine passport for nightclubs and large events and mandatory vaccinations, the NHS, was the issue here, like an issue of principle um, or are some of them just punching a bruise? 
I think they're mostly punching a bruise. I mean, you can pick holes in the plan. Clearly, it's not stopping the spread of an infection. That is evident. It's not going to be enough to stop the spread of an infection. I don't know if we're actually in a place where we can do that now. But if you think about what the Conservatives' motives are, it is to show Boris Johnson where they sit and how unhappy they are in, with his leadership. And they were able to basically give him a kicking because they knew that Keir Starmer would support it without the danger of the government falling right now. And there was an argument that seemed to go around sort of left-wing Twitter that, that Starmer, knowing that uh, the government was going to rely on Labour votes to get this through, should have kind of um, negotiated harder and said, well, look, we'll only support you if you raise sick pay. Did that seem, or any other kind of bit of, you know, use of leverage, did that seem viable, a missed opportunity? No, I don't think it is. I think we're in an emergency state now. I think that looks like, it looks like getting in the way of something that we need to do for the sake of public health. And I don't think that's in line with the impression that he's rightly trying to give of putting public health first and contrasting his approach with that of all these Tory MPs who have rebelled. Um, Naomi, why did the Labour left, Lib Dems and Caroline Lucas also vote no on this? That is a very, very good question. Um, and polling that's come out just before we recorded from YouGov today shows that Lib Dems are amongst the most supportive of these measures. I think that... We've got to remember that by the time this uh, show goes out, the uh, by-election in North Shropshire will have happened. We're going to be talking a bit more about it later in the show. But the Lib Dems are hoping to win that. This is a very rural, um, anti-establishment-y vote now, I would imagine, that they are trying to squeeze over in the last sort of 48 hours of the campaign, um, probably having already squeezed the Labour and whatever Green vote there is in that seat uh, down to almost nothing. So I suspect this was some kind of uh, tactic around that, but I don't know. Um, and it, it does appear to be very short-sighted by them. And I don't think it's it's going to be something that they're going to be proud of in future. It's very odd, I think, seeing Labour left Lib Dems and Greens sort of allying with the, uh, with yeah. the, the Tory right um, yeah. to oppose a measure that over 70% of the public supports. It's like, Agreed. I'm sure some of them are indeed sort of deeply principled libertarians. Um, but maybe not all. I, I don't think there are any very principled libertarians amongst the, the, the current uh, Lib Dem MPs. I think this is, it feels to me like it was a tactical thing in the face of the North Shropshire by-election. Um, Ros, what do you think of the, the plans in themselves? Well, I mean, they're really quite limited. And as we've seen with the case numbers announced today, highest ever, they are not going to hold back the tide of infection. I mean, if we were going to try and do that, we would have locked down two weeks ago, which I think is politically unthinkable. Uh, mm. at, the, at the time, I don't think we could have done it, but it is the only thing that would have stopped this. Uh, it wouldn't have stopped it anyway. I mean, Macron would have popped up again as soon as we unlocked, but it would have perhaps bought us time to uh, triple triple jab more people. I mean, there's there. if you think about Plan B and the issue with vaccine passports, I mean, as you know, a vaccine passport is valid if you've got two jabs, and we know that isn't much help in curbing the spread of Omicron. So logically, perhaps you should have had to show an LFT test rather than just be double jabbed. But the logistics of that, especially given the shortage of LFT tests that we're currently seeing, would be uh, such that yeah. has to make that pretty pretty much impossible. Um, so it, 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 is, it is a little bit... Um, bolting the door after the the horse uh, sorry bolting the door after the horse has has already bolted i didn't want to say bolted twice there but i ended <laughs> up doing doing that that is the problem with that figure of speech we are we are in a very we are in a very scary place now and i say that as someone who is you know cautious about uh, the effects of uh, non pharmaceutical interventions and what they mean we are in a we are in a place we just don't know and soon we won't have any clue how many people actually have covid because we will run out of testing capacity we will run out of the materials that we need for tests and the people doing the tests we will be going solely by how many people are being admitted to hospital and of course that's a lagging indicator and it may well get worse it 
it may not be too bad. There is some evidence that Omicron is less serious. We may be lucky. But this is going to be a very, very hard couple of months. Well, this is it because hospitalizations don't really don't really tell you that much about Omicron because it, it is milder. And thank God, you look at the infection rates now, and if it wasn't milder, people this don't would tend, be a calamity. People don't tend to be admitted to hospital for you know about a week after they first get it. So we have to be very cautious about that. But the indications out of South Africa suggest it's about a third as bad. But we again, it's very hard. South Africa is a very different country, very different vaccination rate, much younger population. Yeah, yeah. We don't, and it's already had a very high level of herd immunity because of the low vaccination rate and, and previous waves having infected so many of them. Yeah, yeah we just don't know. We're flying blind um, at this point. Rods, pre- previous lockdowns, uh, I mean, I'm thinking perhaps if tighter measures come in after Christmas, previous lockdowns met with an impressive amount of compliance or sleepwalking into a neo-Nazi dystopia if you're LBC's Majid Noaz. Um, is Partygate plus COVID fatigue a recipe for people just ignoring advice this time because it will have been almost two years since I'd, the first one. I don't think people will ignore the advice. I think you'll see a de facto lockdown. Basically, people will do less and less and the implications for businesses on that are pretty terrible. And at some point, Rishi Sunak is going to have to step in and think of a plan for tackling that <laughs> in order to bail out all the businesses which will otherwise go bust. I'm sorry, this is so miserable. I'm sorry, Dorian. I, I, I'm not I'm not being very upbeat here today. Keep it light, Ros. But... <laughs> But um, there will be there will be a lot of people who are too scared to go out. Uh, there will be some people who want to carry on as usual. Um, but for the most part, people will be being cautious. And I imagine at the very least in the next day or two, there will be guidance from the government as to what you should do. I don't think they will try and push it through Parliament because I think there will be they haven't got the support among Tory MPs to do so. But there will be guidance. There will be saying, don't meet more than next people. Do, for example, an LFT before your Christmas celebrations, things like that. Um, Naomi, one problem with improv lockdown is that you... <laughs> is that the um, retail sector, hospitality... Uh, suffers a yep. huge loss of custom. A friend of mine um, retweeted her local restaurant, which said that it'd seen like an 80% drop in the last yep. few days, massive sort of cancellations. But mm-hmm. of course, they aren't eligible for government aid because they don't have to close. Mm. So even though, as Ros says, politically sort of seems politically untenable, um, it also seems to be sort of economically untenable yeah. to carry on with basically people cancelling their own plans. Yeah, and we've seen other countries reintroduce furlough today as a, you know, in response to rising cases that are nowhere near the levels of infection that we've got. I mean, where is Rishi Sunak? I mean, seriously, he is playing a very clever game of keeping out of the limelight while his boss flounders uh, in the hope that that he can emerge triumphant if the knife gets stuck in Johnson's shoulder blades over the Christmas period. We we need furlough back. Restaurants, theatres, hotels, music venues, they will crumble. Um, customers are understandably cancelling in their droves uh, in an attempt to keep themselves safe and their loved ones safe so that they might have some semblance of a, a Christmas day. But the sector is now without the support it had last year. Uh, music venues have experienced a 23% drop in audiences since restrictions were announced. 61% had to cancel at least one gig in the week to the 13th of December uh, uh-huh. because of cancellations, because of expected low sales, or because too many staff themselves are testing positive for COVID. I mean, we don't even even have restrictions now mandating uh, food workers, waiters, chefs, etc., to, to wear masks. And and Chan Nagpul of the BMA told the APPG coronavirus yesterday that that is a huge concern. It's one of the main ways that that Omicron seems to be being uh, transmitted. So that the entire hospitality sector is hemorrhaging cash. Um, so the government, you know, where, where is it? Why isn't it suspending business rates, cutting VAT, using the cultural recovery fund and other pots to prop up the sector? Um, you know, it's going to cost the government a huge amount of money to treat the sick people in hospital and those that then become disabled by long COVID. So they may as well, you know, reinstate financial support for venues now so that they can close until mm. we're through the worst of this. Um Quick one. It's been suggested that Johnson's plan or the timing of his plan to get every adult a booster jab by the end of the month. And of course, these the, the, the measures that went that just went through yesterday yeah. were timed to distract from the Christmas party scandal. Mm. Do, you, do you think, given 
what's going on with the infection rate. So that's true. And does it actually matter? <laughs> no. I mean, I think it was very convenient timing. Um, but but given the Omicron rates, they, they had no option but to massively roll out boosters and encourage testing and, and change the messaging around everything. But they will, of course, have hoped to have saved the PM skin at the same time. And so it was a calculation because as deeply unpopular as he now is because of Partygate with the country and his backbenchers, the, the latter don't want more restrictions. And so he had to judge which of the two yep. shit situations was the least shit for his premiership. Um, an ever escalating COVID wave and potentially toppling over uh, NHS services or facing the no confidence of his own MPs. He knew Labour would save his skin on the measures. He opted for that and lives to fight another day as a consequence, though remains on very, very shaky ground. And, you know, as as I said at the top of the show, um, the majority of Conservative and Leave voters when polled this week strongly support the new measures. So politically with the country, he, you know, he, he knew he was on safe ground, although not with his backbenchers. Do you, um, you mentioned earlier uh, the by-election in Erin Patterson's old and very safe seat, normally North yeah. Shropshire. Um, it will be underway or indeed over by the time you hear this. The Lib Dems are optimistic about a shock victory. Uh, but for context, in 2019, Patterson won 62% of the vote. Uh, he's just a lovely man. Uh, the Lib Dems just 10% with Labour second on 22%. Um, so somehow the Lib Dems have become the sort of main opponents mm. instead of Labour. How do you rate their chances? Do you think it is it is just too optimistic to think that you can kind of uh, perform a switcheroo like that? I think at the start of the campaign, I would have said it'll it'll be a safe Conservative hold. I think the Lib Dems have, have done what they do well, which is fight a by-election. And they they have had, obviously, even you know within the last year, very impressive swings to them and, and stonking majorities uh, in by-elections. They're good at winning them, um, much less so seats at the general election. But you raise an incredibly good point, Dorian, about the mixed messaging around this. So received wisdom among the the political chatterati was that the Lib Dems were giving Labour a freeish run at the Bexley by-election two weeks ago, in return for the same in North Shropshire this week, despite, as you mentioned, the Liberals being in third place uh, in in, uh, North Shropshire at every election uh, bar 2010, where I think they, they were in second place. It is worth noting that the Leave vote was a few percentage points smaller in Shropshire than in Bexley, which may have had something to do with the decision between them if there was one. Hmm. But despite the Liberals having been in third place in that seat, um, the betting markets inferred very, very quickly that it was the Liberals that were ahead of Labour for for second place and potentially nicking the seat. So whatever gentleman's agreement may or may not have been brokered between the two parties, The mixed messaging is really unhelpful. Remember, by-elections are very different. It is much easier to protest vote and and be tactical when you're not changing who's in number 10. The by-elections are not on the same day. Had they been on the same day, I think you would have seen a much clearer division of where the activists went. Labour would have stuck with Bexley, Lib Dems would have stuck with North Shropshire. But being a fortnight apart has made it difficult uh, to direct activists in one direction only. And a reason for the confusion and the division uh, and the mixed message is that, you know, obviously Labour did come second in the seat in 2019 and the betting markets were referring Lib Dem win here in 2021. It is worth remembering, though, that, that come a general election, everything will be very different because there would not be a single seat that the Lib Dems would target that they would be doing so from third place. Yeah. Um, so so it, it, I think it's been disappointing that, you know, Angela Rayner has visited the seat this week, that the local Labour activists have really, uh, you know, tried tried to, to, to ramp it up. And I don't want to be too wildly um, out of date and look like I don't know what I'm talking about because most people will be listening to the show after the result has been announced. But but recording the day before the election, the Lib Dems could do it. Um, and if they don't, I think it will be as a, as a consequence of poor discipline uh, and a lack of coordinated working between the two main opposition parties. Uh, Roz, the charge levelled against Starmer by his sceptics is that the government has basically destroyed its own poll lead and all he's had to do is stand there and look serious. Um, is that fair? How do you think he's played his hand with both Partygate and the divisions over Plan B? 
I think he's played it actually fairly well. And, you know, it's pretty cynical to say that with, uh, I think, one poll saying 41 Labour, 32 Conservative last last weekend. And his own approval ratings. And his own approval ratings going, uh, going up. I mean, it would have been immensely cynical to vote against Plan B for the sake of bringing down the government earlier. I don't think the public would have appreciated that. And as we approach, I'm sorry to bang on this public health emergency, as this becomes deeper, (laughs) they would have appreciated that even less. I mean, if there's one thing worse than having to go into this stage of the pandemic with the Tories in charge, it's having to go into the stage of the pandemic with nobody in charge of even the Tories. Um, uh, It's, you know, it would be nice to think that we could have a, um, you know, some kind of emergency government could be put in place. But in practice, I think that would take some time to put together. So I think he's played it. He's played it fairly well at this point. Um, Kim, uh, the UK is not the only country uh, which is struggling with COVID at the moment. Um, But it does seem to be looking particularly chaotic politically. Um, How does it look from from outside? I know the New York Times loves nothing better than running pieces about how Britain is basically falling into the sea. Um, but I wonder what your take on it was. Yeah, well, I've got to say it's fascinating to um, to listen to the conversation sitting here in in Beirut, uh, in a country that's been that's seen its economy kind of decimated by other problems. Uh, we've had a national currency devaluation by ninety percent, inflation at four hundred percent, and COVID is kind of. I don't want to say the least of our worries, but not something that dominates our our day to day. And I almost want to feel better for Lebanon listening to very dreary points that are being made. Um, It's all not very cheerful. Um, (laughs) Sorry, guys. If we can make Lebanon feel better, then that's a job done. Yes, we made Lebanon look a bit better. (laughs) I'm sort of thinking, gosh, we've got this COVID thing kind of under control, actually. I mean, look. The number of cases have tripled over the last uh, week or so, but everyone expected that because we're going to see an influx of Lebanese expatriates coming from around the country. Everyone's trying to get vaccinated. There are marathons uh, every weekend to get people vaccinated. 92,000 people showed up this weekend Mm. for a Pfizer marathon. That's quite a lot in a small country of four, four million. Uh, Vaccination rates are still relatively low. It's um, 32% total. But overall, the one thing that this government here, uh, repetitive governments, that have been a failure at everything. The only thing that they've managed to kind of manage okay is the COVID crisis. So that's one thing <laughs> going going for them. But otherwise also, you know, when I look at Partygate, when I look at the pictures today um, about, you know, other Christmas parties, I sort of feel like our politicians are not the only ones who are who are incompetent and maybe we should be a bit kinder to them here in Lebanon. I, I don't know. We sort of feel like there's a kinship there. But the good thing about the UK is that obviously there is a, you know, opposition and um, um, and things can change with elections. That's not clear yet in Lebanon whether we'll be able to bring about political change yeah. with elections next year. But I have to say that overall, people here are so consumed by their daily concerns, um, by just making ends meet. The, the country is sliding in, into poverty very, very rapidly. It's really astounding and heartbreaking that people don't pay too much attention to international headlines unless it's about them. Yeah. Is the UK going to help? Is the US going to help? Is Saudi Arabia going to help? That's what really matters to people here. To political change, whether Johnson will resign is one question, but whether we want him to resign is another. It would, of course, be a lot of fun. Um, But could it have unintended consequences? Rather than just saying what we think, uh, we've decided to do this debate style with me putting the case against and Roz putting the case for and Naomi passing judgment like Solomon. (laughs) We're basing our arguments on an early 2022 scenario once the Omicron spike has subsided. So we're going to assume that that's not a factor. So let's play, should he stay or should he go? <laughs> um, I'm in the peculiar situation of, of suggesting he should stay. Um, so two problems with, with Johnson going. One is just very politically cynical. Uh, Corbyn, you'll remember, fared relatively well against Theresa May after the 2017 election because she was so damaged by the result. But he kept calling for her to resign. When she did resign and Johnson took over and kind of reset the whole Brexit situation, the 2019 election was effectively lost, I think, for Labour. 
um, Corbyn fared terribly against Johnson. So now a wounded Johnson, who has lost the trust of both the public and his own party, could be much easier to run against than a Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss or, insert name here, who comes in fresh and calls uh, for an election during their honeymoon period. So that's the cynical concern. The other reason is that Johnson is not the worst the Tory party has to offer um, on a policy level. He likes to spend money. Um, he's sort of invested in, in levelling up. It's not just on, on wallpaper, um, which Sunak does not enjoy doing. He's willing to take uh, you know, measures against COVID, albeit too late. And as we've seen, a lot of his backbenchers um, don't want to do any of that. And he generally cares about climate change, if only because of uh, Carrie. So it's quite likely that his successor would be more pro-austerity, more lockdown sceptical, uh, and anti-net zero. It might even be somebody that Steve Baker likes. Uh, so that is my case for Boris Johnson being the lesser of two evils. Roz. Yeah, it's precisely because Boris Johnson is not the worst of the Tories, as you say, that I think that if you hope to get rid of the Tories as soon as possible, then you should hope that he goes. He is a liability, undoubtedly. People have lost confidence in him. But he does have a unique connection with the electorate that has enabled him to get away with as much as he has. And we cannot guarantee that we might see a situation in the spring where people are having what they see as their freedoms returned and there's a general positive feeling to what is going on. I don't think that will happen, but it's a possibility. The fact is that there is no one in the current cabinet who can approach that appeal that he had. It is, as you say, likely to shift very unpleasantly further to the right, whether it is trust, this trust or whether it is Rishi Sunak or whether, God forbid, it is Pretty Patel. The Conservatives would be the nasty party. That is what Johnson has done for them. He has taken the nasty party label away and replaced it with jolly party. Um, and Perhaps too jolly last Christmas. Yeah, exactly. Jolly, <laughs> jolly party. That is precisely what he has done. And the electorate don't like nasty Tory party. Uh, it's not it's not an appealing look. We should also bear in mind that the Conservatives are very good at getting rid of their leaders when they realise that they are over, they are busted flush, but they are not so good at choosing them. And the record of Conservatives being able to choose their leaders is actually fairly poor. If you look back even within the last 20 years or so, they have appointed some absolute, you know, Ian Duncan Smith. It, it's It's... They're not, they're not very good at knowing who is electable, but they are very good at knowing when to kick the person who is no longer electable out. So although it would be a deeply horrific spectacle for Liz Truss to take over as prime minister, I think that it, yeah, if you have an interest in getting rid of the Conservatives uh, and in precipitating a, a general election, that is what you should hope for. Uh, Naomi, what do you think? Do you have anything to, to add to uh, either of those cases? Or are you just going to split the baby in half? <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. Um, I think if my political career to date has taught me anything, it's don't wait. Things don't get better. Brown should have, should have challenged Blair earlier. David Miliband should have challenged Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown should have done the election before he did... Uh, in 2010, Nick Clegg shouldn't have, uh, you know, hung around like a bad smell and the Lib Dems should have got rid of him before the 2015 general election. Uh, politics is littered with, oh, now's not the right time. Now's not the right time. Um, and actually, it usually was the only time. We have now got an incredibly weakened Johnson who has an 80-seat majority, for goodness sake. You know, this is somebody who we did not expect uh, to have unravelled this badly um, by this stage of, of Parliament. Hugely popular Mayor of London, obviously an incredibly popular uh, Prime Minister, and he, he is now on the skids. And I think he has to go, uh, not because I think he will go, but because, as Roz says, the Conservatives are incredibly transactional in their relationships and they don't hesitate to knife somebody who is unpopular. And... Uh, uh, we, as we went into record today, new cases reported at being nearly 79,000, and that's the official number, with other estimates putting it 
far, far, far higher. We are in a situation where we've had galloping inflation and we have this corrupt, sleaze-ridden, dangerous government. And I say dangerous because the polling that we've done in the last week around Partygate shows that 65% of people to 21 think that Johnson's scandal will negatively impact compliance with the COVID rules. This is a dangerous government. Johnson is a dangerous man. He now cannot bring the country with him, let alone his own backbenchers. And so I would say he needs to go, but that we need a government of national emergency and that the more sensible, moderate uh, backbench conservatives, some of whom did rebel yesterday, should then back um, a a Starmer-led unity coalition government to take us through until the time that the conservatives elect their new leader and then we should have a general election good left field left field fantasy scenario there (laughs) we can but hope Now, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and its immediate fall to the Taliban in August was one of the most humiliating and shaming events of 2021. Tens of thousands of Afghans were left behind after a hasty evacuation, and though ministers promised to relocate up to 20,000, the resettlement scheme is still in the design stage. So did the West's involvement in Afghanistan over the last 20 years achieve anything? And are we in a position to have positive influence there ever again? This week's special guest is Middle East expert Kim Gattis. Um... Kim, let's start with the uh, the ridiculously big question first. Um, mm. Do you think that that everything that the West achieved in Afghanistan over the last twenty years was wiped out uh, when the Taliban took control? Is there any uh, is there any legacy left? God, it's such a difficult question. I have to say, I've been reading a lot about the aftermath. You know, all the sort of what Americans call the TikTok narratives, uh, what happened when, who did what, why did it unfold like that? Um, There's a fantastic piece in The New Yorker by Steve Cole about the very last hours, the very last days of America's presence there and its allies. And I don't think that um, we will know for some time yet whether everything's been wiped out. Certainly, you know, Afghanistan is on the verge of um, humanitarian catastrophe. And certainly um, a lot of people have left, thousands. And a lot of those left feel like they've been um, perhaps buried alive, especially the women. But I also read a lot coming out of Afghanistan, um, from especially the women there, who are fighting back, pushing for schools to reopen, um, you know, locking the Taliban in the eyes and, you know, pushing back against them. So I think if we don't have a Taliban 2.0, because I don't think they have changed, I don't think they have evolved, there's certainly an Afghanistan 2.0, and the Taliban will have to deal with that. I don't think you can erase years of progress uh, overnight, but it really depends on how things are going to unfold going forward. How much longer is this current state of affairs going to last? The longer it lasts, the more you start to erase the progress that has been made over the last few years. It's the same for Lebanon. A lot of progress was made after the civil war. We were, you know, we were way, way past those, those days. And when the first, um, when the economic crisis first emerged, we thought, okay, we can, we can manage this. And then now it's been two years and you're starting us, you're starting to see the country slide into something that, you know, we weren't expecting. The longer you wait, the more chances you have of erasing really years and decades of progress. For Afghanistan, I think it's too early to tell, as dire as things are. I, I think also for, for Afghans, I think it's very important not to sort of be dismissive of their effort to push back against the Taliban and to push forward for progress and to maintain the hope. Because if we all say, well, you know, it's all gone, all that is, is, has been erased, um, then that's also very depressing for people within the country or those Afghans yeah. outside who are fighting for Afghans inside Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. And back in August, uh, like you say, the Taliban were trying to appear as, as reasonable as uh, religious hardliners can appear. Um, they weren't sort of um, 
they weren't sort of immediately uh, sort of restoring what what they had before. How is the new regime looking a few months later? Are there are there, you said they haven't haven't changed? Are there any signs that that even if they haven't changed what they want, perhaps they've changed what they think is uh, wearable for Afghans? Well, I think they're they're starting to realize uh, quite quickly that they cannot operate the way they did in the nineties. The world has changed. Um, if they want foreign assistance to be released, they must make some concessions. They must allow the technocrats who were running the government before them, just before them, to come back to work, even if they're women, because you know they're the ones who know how to run a country. Mm. Um, Taliban simply don't. They didn't run a country this way in the 90s. It was coming out of a civil war. Um, it wasn't connected to the world the way Afghanistan is today. It didn't have all this foreign assistance and these foreign reserves. So the question is, A, are they going to be pragmatic enough to not change who they are, but to adapt to circumstances? And eventually that might change a little bit who they are. And B, how much pushback are they going to get from, from the population um, and from the, I don't want to say elite, because we, we tend to think that only the westernized elite fights for uh, progressive values or um, education or things like that. And I think that's, um, that's a stereotype. Uh, a lot of, you know, um, pictures of young kids, uh, boys in villages holding up banners saying, you know, I'm not going to school until my sister can go to school. So so there's a, there's a new awareness also after 20 years of education, access, music, television, that there is a different way forward. And Afghanistan is facing uh, a hideous famine this winter, um, according to one prediction I saw, could kill vastly more people in a few months than died in 20 years of war. Uh, is it obvious how the West can help the Afghan people without endorsing the Taliban, without that risk of um, aid money being misappropriated? No, this is the eternal question. From Syria and Bashar al-Assad to Afghanistan and the Taliban, any aid that goes into a country ruled by a dictator or um, or an extremist group ends up helping that group. Uh, or that dictator hold on to power. Um, And these are unfortunately some of the very difficult choices that the international community is going to have to make in Afghanistan. You know, it's what they've, what the international community in the UN have had to do in, in Syria, where a lot of the aid that goes into the country ends up benefiting the regime. But I think the UN can do a much better job negotiating this and do a much better job at, um, you know, putting in safeguards so that it doesn't end up benefiting the regime. And not just in terms of deflating the popular anger, which means that then they're not toppled, but also uh, making sure that it doesn't line the pockets of those who, who are in power, because there are always kickbacks everywhere. Um, moving on to Iran, you just wrote a great piece for The Atlantic about how Iran feels cornered by the Biden administration. Mm. Um, now, of course, Trump pulled out of uh, Obama's Iran deal. Um, there was an expectation that Biden uh, would want to revive that pretty quickly. Why, why is that moving slowly? Because I think that what everybody expected was that Biden... Was br- who was bringing in some of the um, some some of the same officials who had been in the Obama administration. Uh, there was an expectation that those officials would rush back to uh, revive the deal that they had negotiated. But there's a difference between um, the different officials who were closest to President Obama himself, um, which some people describe as the Obama boys. And then there were others uh, who came from different backgrounds or served on Hillary Clinton's staff or served on Biden's staff who saw things a little bit differently. And those are the ones who are now uh, in charge of some of these files, like the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan or the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken or even uh, Brett McGurk, the Special um, Advisor for the Middle East. They have a much more clear-eyed view of Iran. And I think they've done their homework during the four years of, of Trump out of power. And they may have finally understood that engaging with Iran without proper threat of deterrence 
or having only deterrence, um, those don't work. You must have diplomacy with deterrence and with pressure. And I think that's what we are seeing unfold. So uh, my understanding is that, you know, President Biden himself was opposed to the immediate lifting of sanctions in exchange for a return to to the JCPOA. And the Iranians, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, all expected that they would get this sanction relief very quickly. And, you know, they've clearly been disappointed. Now, you may end up with a crisis at the beginning of next year, because Iran is moving very rapidly with enrichment. So it's going to be uh, you know, a tightrope and some very t- and some very tense months in the region as we navigate diplomacy and negotiations in Vienna um, with some pressure because Iran is advancing on, um, you know, nuclear enrichment. Um, you have the Israelis pushing possibly for military military action. I, I don't think it will happen, but but that threat is always out there, and that's that's how you do um, what Jake Sullivan describes as aggressive diplomacy. Uh, and going back to, to Iran's great rival, Saudi Arabia, um, Biden's just approved another wave of arms sales to Saudi. They are a big customer of the UK as well. We talked earlier about these kind of uh, cultural whitewashing. Um, does the West, or spe- I mean specifically, I suppose, the US and the UK, just see the price of penalizing Saudi for human rights abuses and murder, the war in Yemen, etc., as just too high that as a strategic ally against Iran, it just means that they that they can't do anything, or are there things that they could do, and they could actually be a sort of more critical ally, and they're just failing to do it. So, when it comes to the arms sales that have just been uh, approved by Biden, I think they still have to go through Congress, if I'm not mistaken. So, it's not a done deal just yet. It's a quid pro quo for Saudi Arabia to be more cooperative on some issues in exchange for getting this defensive um, arms that will help them, um, or at least that's how it's being sold, mm. that will help them defend themselves against um, missile attacks from, from Yemen by by the Houthis. Because that's been their, their, their greatest concern, that they don't feel that the US has its back when Iran launched missiles at oil facilities, etc., the U.S. was was not there to defend them, even under President Trump. And so they want to feel that they've got some defensive capabilities so that they can also put an end to the disastrous war in, in Yemen. Talk about something that is under the radar. I mean, we just don't speak enough about the, the terrible disaster that this war has been mm. um, in Yemen. But this, the Americans, this Biden administration has tried to get the Saudis to cooperate on certain things, including withdrawing from the war, ending the war in Yemen. And the response has been, well, we're not withdrawing if you don't have our back. And if you don't have our back, then we need our own defensive capabilities. So that's what they're hoping to um, to get. But you're absolutely right to point out that for the longest time, this has been the, this has been the approach to Saudi Arabia. Well, yes, you are human rights abuses, women can't drive, et cetera, et cetera. But we need you for, um, you know, as a counter to Iran, as a critical ally to uh, supply oil and and so on. And I think that what um, is important to realize is, is A, both Saudi Arabia and Iran play the U.S. to their their advantage. Um, B, um, Saudi Arabia and Iran together have also driven the region to, um, to the abyss. And so what is required is not lurching from one to the other, um, sort of, you know, the Obama approach, which was to try to find any way forward with Iran at the expense of Saudi Arabia, or President Trump, you know, hugged Saudi Arabia so closely um, that MBS Mohammed bin Salman could get away with the murder of a journalist, but find a balance um, between these two. And, you know, I don't know if I'm being too positive about the Biden administration, but I think that's certainly what they're trying. I don't know that they'll succeed. Some listeners may have heard the the new Axios podcast um, about the chaotic negotiations um, led by the Trump administration that led to the Abraham Accords last year, which built bridges between Israel and some Arab nations and seemed to, uh, from the reporting, surprise uh, surprise everybody involved. Um, and that seemed to be uh, a bit of good news, although not um, not for the Palestinians, who he felt like sort of let, betrayed by those by those nations. What's been the result of the Accords sort of a year later? 
surprisingly um, stable in a way. I, I, you know, I, I did not expect them to last, to be honest. Um, I thought as soon as Trump was at the door, they would collapse. But I think that the Israelis and the Emiratis have found a lot of common ground and that involves doing a lot of business together. Whether they can expand to other countries in the region beyond Bahrain and, um, you know, a little bit of uh, Sudan, but that's sort of, you know, um, not like we're not sure what's going to go on there uh, because of the internal situation in Sudan and, you know, some some sense that Morocco might might join. I don't know whether it will expand beyond that. So Arabia is still very far off in the distance. Um, but when it comes to the Emirates and, and Israel, it seems, you know, quite, quite viable. And, and sustainable and growing. And it's been interesting to see the Emiratis, the Jordanians and the Israelis, you know, sign a new energy deal. I mean, those, the peace between Jordan and Israel has not been very warm since the 90s. So that's been interesting to watch. But there's a lot of pushback within Jordan um, because they're closer to Israel. They're closer to the West Bank. They have a large Palestinian population. They're not as removed from the conflict as the Emiratis. And so it sort of strikes a different chord the closer you are to, to the actual conflict and to you know the continued injustice of the occupation of Palestinians. Uh, so I should say to listeners, loathe I am to uh, recommend rival podcasts. Um, if, you, if you're not a fan of Trump or Netanyahu, there's some amazing alien versus predator action in that reporting where it turns out that they were, they were not the bosom buddies they appeared to be. Um, yeah, the F word appears uh, in there. And uh, <laughs> President Trump is not the only American president who's used the F word about the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. It started with Clinton. I know, it's very juicy stuff. Um, finally, Kim, uh, we've, we've, we've covered a few uh, topics there. What else should we be looking out for in the region um, next year? Like, um, they could be danger points or, God forbid, um, something positive. Yes, God forbid, something positive. Well, I, I I would like to talk about something something positive um, or hope for something positive because we are going to have uh, elections in, in Lebanon and it's never, you know, elections in countries like this one or in the region are never a, a game changer. But I do think that there's a... Um, a renewed awareness in Lebanon and across the region that it's important to participate in elections and to try to change the system. Because for the longest time, the young generation or anyone with you know, a moral compass or ethics or integrity would refuse to participate in politics because it was really a dirty game and a rigged game at that. You had to kiss the hand of the dictator or you had to accept kickbacks or you had to pay kickbacks. Um, and so people stayed away. But 10 years after the Arab uprisings, where people thought that by bringing down the system, they could start anew, people are, young people are starting to realize that they actually have to try to participate and run and push back against the system like that. So although it's a difficult road forward, and Lebanon is, as I said, sinking into, into poverty very rapidly, and we're, we're ruled by a bunch of you know, incompetent, uncaring politicians. I think that rings a bell to many people around the world with their own incompetent, uncaring politicians. But I think ours really um, you know, top the charts. Um, I think there is some hope on the horizon that perhaps um, the hardship of the last two years will translate into real political action. And, you know, they might win 10% or 20% of parliament, but that will be a beginning. And mm. after the parliamentary elections, you'll have presidential elections, you'll have municipal elections. So there are actually uh, little bits of light on the horizon, we hope. Now it's time for the return of But Your Emails. Rob Hasty asks, my Canadian partner recently had to take the Home Office's Life in the UK test to secure his right to stay in the country. Pleased to say he passed, but I certainly wouldn't have. All the questions about Tudors and Stuarts, Corn Lords, Saints Days, and who invented the hovercraft. <laughs> that was obviously Robert Hovercraft. Um, <laughs> as well as my new TI of how courts of law run differently across the devolved nations. How do the panel rate their chances of passing the test? You need 75%. And what questions would they want to include to accurately test a person's true understanding of life in the UK today? Roz, would you be allowed to stay in the country? 
Well, I hope so. And I hope I say that because I used to edit an entire website called Democratic Audit. And you'd think that somebody who had been in that position would have a reasonable idea of how UK politics works and a smattering of history. But on the other hand, you know, the weird thing for me with these is that the questions are so different from what most people have actually learned in school. Because in history, you tend to learn about the Nazis. Maybe you learn a bit about the New Deal. You certainly don't learn about the separation of powers, or at least I never did, or anything about how the courts work, though obviously the subject of citizenship has been brought in in recent years, which is arguably a good thing. But the gulf between what is supposedly important to know about this country and what most people actually know about how this country works is very large. Uh, Naomi, everybody knows that you, you can't have a conversation with an Englishman without the Corn Laws coming up. Yeah. Um, but but how, would, how would you do? Would you get to some I, I, I can confidently say that the chief executive of Best for Britain would, would almost certainly not get 75% uh, or above in the British citizenship test. However, were it to contain these questions, which it should, I would. First off, what's your favourite pub snack? I think that's you've got to roll off the tongue you've got to know is it peanuts is it crisps is it a pickled egg whatever it is you've got to have a ready answer um i think you need to ask people how do you tell if someone is from devon or cornwall jam before cream cream before jam you need to know it it's important um how how do you pronounce leicester very important is it okay to not say hello to a dog you meet in the street Ooh. No, it is not okay. You have to greet every dog you meet. And finally, <laughs> finally, what is the correct volume of a tut if you see somebody trying to skip a queue? Ooh. No, this is that's good stuff. the real British citizenship test. Well, like you, um, I, I mean, I think obviously I could do some revision, which is the whole point. Um, I don't think they're just randomly grown people and going Judas and Stuarts. Um, but without revision, yes, I may well not get to the 75% because a lot of this stuff just does not stick in my head. I tried to revive, learn all the counties once because I thought I know all the, all the US states and their capitals, but I don't know the counties. And my brain just froze. There were just too many shires. Just couldn't, couldn't get my head around it. Really good way of doing that, Dorian, is to, and, and now that you know things are closing up again, is to get a jigsaw. There's loads of jigsaws, educational ones that have the counties on them. Oh. You need to get five hundred or thousand piece jigsaw, and then you will never forget. Lockdown phone. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I would. I would think. Well, there's two things I think that I would introduce. One is very important, which is um, which is just sort of comedy and cultural references. Uh, which sitcom character uh, fell through the bar? Nice the, and smooth, Rodney. Blah blah blah. Things like things like that. Lines from uh, the thick of it. Um, Mrs. Brown's boys. I'd fail on that one. Um, and then I also think we need an understanding of incredibly petty class politics. Oh, yeah. So I would ask people coming from other countries, which uh, staple food from your homeland is inexplicably stereotyped as a middle class luxury once you <laughs> arrive in England? <laughs> because that, that always seems to happen when people talk about middle class food. And it's like, well, except for people from those countries for whom this is like kind of just, just basic. Um, so I think you have to understand the extreme pettiness of, uh, of class politics here. Um, Kim, what about you? Uh, well, I would fail. I would get zero uh, because um, I'm actually not that familiar with the UK, but I must say that I agree with some of the questions we've just heard. And I think that <laughs> everyone should say hello to the dog when they see them on the street, especially my dog. You can come in. You're in. <laughs> Great. That's it. <laughs> Thank um, you. I also tut very loudly when somebody's trying to skip the line. So maybe I would get two percent. Yeah, you know more than you think you do. <laughs> I think I think a sigh is is you know. Do you, do you tut or do you sigh? Personally, I just sigh really loudly. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we go, some of the stories you might have missed in our regular service called Under the Radar. Um, Kim, you could start on this one. What should we be paying more attention to? Climate change. I know it's not under the radar, but somehow I still think we don't get all the gravity of what is about to unfold uh, and is unfolding. I think um, everyone should read the latest New York Times picture essay with videos that is just incredible looking at the current impact of climate change in 
um, I can't remember how many countries, I think maybe 150 countries around the world. It's, I want to say a thing of beauty, but it's really depressing. But the images, the way it's produced, um, I, I really think everybody should um, should see that. Perhaps after the new year, so we, they could try to be jolly over Christmas and then get depressed on the 2nd of January. Um, Naomi? Uh, well, uh, I'm going to do some pretty Patel bashing because why not? Favorite hobby. Um, as of 4 p.m. yesterday, which is Tuesday, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, the government um, have drastically narrowed the only safe route for Afghans that there was left to get to the UK. Mm. They've quietly changed the Arab scheme that we've talked about before in the show. So it's now much harder for Afghans who worked with and for the British to seek protection here. So they've narrowed the criteria for Afghan relocations and assistance policy um, than that that was used during the, the operation pitting evacuation in August. Um, and frankly, it's absolutely shocking that this has been done before the Afghan citizens resettlement scheme is fully opened. Um, and uh, I think on, on less busy news days, we would have heard a lot more about that. Roz. Um, new survey out today, very Christmas carol relevant. Um, it shows the wealthy are giving less to charity. So the top 1% of the population are actually giving 21% less than they did a decade ago. And then there's this really small pool of super generous people. And then most of the very rich people don't really give much at all. And this is bizarre on the face of it, because this is despite more than a decade of austerity. And you have to ask yourself, why is this happening? Why this lack of empathy? Uh, is it, you know, is it because the rich feel as insecure as the rest of us? Is it because they feel distance from the rest of society? Because increasingly they opt out of the rest of society. They go to different schools. They have private health care, all those things that take you away from actually having to see other people suffering. What What is it behind it? But Gus O'Donnell, who uh, used to be in government, of course, has been calling for a philanthropy commissioner who would try and encourage people to give more. So it's a it's a weird and distressing trend. Well, rich people, in my experience, are generally terrible. Um, and did you see the, the story about Daniel Kaczynski, who was trying to become the most pro-Saudi MP in the Commons? Uh, so oh, yeah, a lobbying gig. And one of his, uh, his WhatsApps leaked, and one of his complaints was like, but I, I can't, I need to afford school. Mm. Uh, and as many mm. people pointed out, wait till he finds out that school is free. <laughs> um, and that you actually choose uh, to pay if you're a Tory MP. Um, my uh, under the radar is that the Belarusian opposition leader, Sergei Tikhanovsky, has been jailed for 18 years following a, tr a trial that was um, condemned as a sham. Um, obviously, he'd planned to challenge Lukashenko in the presidential election last year, was detained before the vote. His wife stood in his place, is now in exile. And I just feel like we talked quite a lot about Belarus. We did a couple of bunker dailies. We talked about it on the main shows. Um, last year, when, when there was a lot of courageous uh, opposition and we spoke to some of those protesters, and it's just it's just sort of deeply... Shocking that that not only, of course, have they failed to remove Lukashenko, but now he's just on a kind of revenge spree. And that is the end of the show uh, with our usual uh, festive fun and laughter. Thank you so much to our special guest, Kim Gattis. Black Wave is out now, published by Headline. Thanks, Kim. Thank you for having me. And to our regulars, Roz Taylor. Thank you. And Naomi Smith. Thanks for having me. We'll be back next week with the final Oh God, What Now of 2021. And before that, here's our shout out to Patreon backers. Uh, gracias y feliz Navidad from me to Julie Grant, Tom, David Treasure, Jennifer Halls, Lorraine Barnbrick, Emily Giles and David Stockwell. Happy holidays and thanks from me to Sue Wilkinson, Paul, Mamadin Sise, Liam Bracey, Solvet Saclum, Connor Newhouse and Alistair McMillan. And season's greetings for me to Sarah Pickles, Rosie Pegg, Tom Watson, Thomas Richards, Susan Live, Jay Humphreys and Marion Stiasny. Take care and see you soon. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky. Roz Taylor, Naomi Smith, and special guest Kim Gutters. The producer was Andrew Harrison. Assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production from me, Robin Lieber. Art direction is by Mark Taylor. And oh god, what now is a Podmasters production? Mm -hmm.
Welcome to the extra bit of Oh God, What Now? The secret party, but not a party, which is accessible only to Patreon people. This week, Christmas is coming, and so, if you're unlucky, or your unvaccinated relatives. Spreading something that isn't Christmas cheer. So, in a sequel to our popular feature, How Do You Talk to Relatives About Brexit? <laughs> it's How Do You Talk to Relatives About Vaccines? Now, I must admit my privilege here in that I do not have friends or family members um, in this situation. They're all all vaccine lovers uh, in my inner circle. What about you, Naomi? I do. Um, I've got a very close friend who is refusing to get her booster um, because, and this is uh, verbatim pretty much, I can't afford to not feel very well over Christmas because her first two vaccines left her feeling Mm. a bit ropey for a couple of days. I'm terrified for her. I'm terrified for her family. I wasn't due to see her anyway, but, you know, I'm tearing my hair out that she won't do it and that she can't see that she will be far poorlier if she contracts Omicron. Um, She also says, well, I've had Brexit a couple of times. Uh, Brexit? God, (laughs) there we go. Uh, I've had COVID a couple of times as well. So, I, you know, I'm I'm surely very immune. That was a taster for the extra bit of Oh God, What Now? If you want to hear more, then search Patreon Oh God, What Now? to get the extended episode early every week and without ads, plus our Monday minicast Oh God, What Else? Ticket discounts, merchandise and more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.